The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. This show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1968, Episode 5, July through August. As long as we're together with Girl, you ease my mind Nicola. Doing things together with Girl, I'm feeling fine Can't believe the day is past Time with you goes much too fast Now it's getting kind of late And ice cold coke would taste just great In Yorkshire, England, on Sunday, June 30th, Paul produced the recordings for the TV theme Thingamabob by the Black Dyke Mills Brass Band. It was scheduled to be one of the first four records released on the Apple label later in the year. An interview with Paul was filmed at the recording session. They said it had some sheet music of a Mozart thing. And I said, what's that? You know? And he said, oh, <laughs> say, oh, that's the eyeglass stuff. You won't like that. He said, no, no, you won't like that. And I said, well, what is it, you know? He said, oh, no, you won't like it. You know, it's high class, that. It's very high class, highbrow. And uh, that kind of way, I always used to think of it. I used to think, well, you know, that is, that's very clever, all that stuff. And it isn't, you know, it's just exactly what's going on in pop at the moment. Pop music is the classical music of now. People just take our music and, you know, in a line, and we just sort of say, yeah, she was just 17. And they just, they read everything into that. But, you know, what we meant is she's just 17. But it might mean all the other as well. I don't know. I've no idea of any Aeolian cadences and, you know, miasmic climaxes and all of that. And we're the last people to know about our songs because the pop world never heard the pop world as such. We really just always think of ourselves as just happy little songwriters, just little rockers, you know, just playing in a rock group. But it gets more important than that after you've been over to America and you've sort of got knighted. On July 1st, John's first art exhibition called You Are Here opened at the Robert Fraser Gallery dedicated to Yoko. It was titled You Are Here to Yoko from John with Love. What exactly does it mean you well, are you are here. Well, instead of uh, true, always there or something, you know, usually people think in the vicarious terms, uh, 
they think, well, somebody's there. John Lennon's there, somebody. But it's not that. You are the one who's here. And so in, in art, usually artists give something that's an object, made object, and say, this is art, you know. But instead of that, art exists in people, it's people's art. And so um, we don't believe in just uh, making something and completing it and giving it to people. But we like uh, people to participate and uh, no. sort of all the pieces are unfinished. Yeah. And they have to be finished. Now, now, people. now we've, 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 what have we got here? You were pointing at this as you were explaining that, Yoko. Yes. Tell us about this. It's what, a broken cup? Well, right? it's just an example, but this is uh, supposed to be a sculpture, and it's a broken cup. And uh, an unfinished sculpture that would be just made by people, just gradually uh, rebuilding it into a cup. Oh, well, and is the sculpture then the, the broken cup? Or the way people rebuild it. With well, the, the thing glue. is, there's no such thing as sculpture or art, and it's just, it's just a bit of, it's just words, you know. Mm -hmm. And she's saying everything is art, and we're all art. Art is just a tag, like a journalist tag, you know. But artists believe it, and that sculpture is anything. You, know, you care to name it? This is sculpture or sitting here. This is a happening. Yeah. We are here. I don't think this is art. art. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, so I mean, if you gave that to a child. He wouldn't have any preconceived ideas, so you wouldn't have to say, this is sculpture, or this is a broken cup. You'd say, there's that, mm. there's glue. What it's do you do? That, uh, you stick it together. In reply to your question, I think you can say that this is just a process of art, or a process of things. You know, everything's just a process. I wonder what these things looked like before somebody threw paint all over them. This one is called Picture of a Polar Bear Eating Vanilla Ice Cream During a Blizzard. It has nice texture. We haven't got the uh, the you are here uh, canvas no. canvas because well, it's locked up in was. a cupboard and no one could get at it. But yeah, can well, we let bring me... on a blackboard yeah. and the other thing? Like, it's better to explain why it was on canvas first. Yes, the right. point was I had this idea that, like you know, the street maps or things that say uh, where where a place is, you are here, you know, on those street map things. You've seen them? Yes. Right. So I thought, oh, that'd be a good idea to have a show where you actually have the street map inside the gallery. And you went in and saw that. So I thought, now, if I did that, uh, and seeing as I've never done it before, and they've all got preconceived ideas about what I am, I thought, ha-ha, I'll put it on canvas, and that makes it art brackets or inverted <laughs> commas. You know, I mean, it is or it isn't, however you like it. So I put it on a big white round canvas and just had you are here that I'd written on it. And uh, the point of the show was people went through various things to get to the thing, to the canvas, and then they reacted to it. And some of them just thought, oh, yeah, you know, no, no hang-up, you are here. And they got a badge. I had a hat saying, for the artist, which they put money in or chewing or any, all sorts of rubbish <laughs> and that. Anything, I didn't mind. And then they took a badge. But I filmed them secretly with a candid camera team, and sometimes they'd go up and they go, so <laughs> they put something in, or they'd take, them, they'd take a badge and they'd look around and they'd take a handful. <laughs> and there's all these amazing reactions. The whole point of the show was that was the art, that was the, the happening. Mm -hmm of these people reacting to it. Some people who are sort of less hung up just sort of accept it. Oh, you are a good joke, or oh, so what? I like this one. Where's the name of it? Oh, it's called a water fountain. Cool, man. Look at this, a set of drums. Yeah. Don't touch the sculpture. Sculpture? It's a set of drums. It may look like drums to you, but I call it portrait of father. Oh, I get it. It's pop art. <laughs> yeah.
On Wednesday, July 3rd, Obla di Obla Da, the song which, in many minds, was the most fun number on the Beatles' double album, was a very involved recording indeed, spanning the original version and two remakes, and recorded virtually every day from now until mid-July. On July 5th, numerous overdubs onto Obla di Obla Da take place. Three saxophones and one set of bongos were taped. On July 16th, a day of concentrated work on John Lennon's song Cry Baby Cry takes place. The recording engineer, Jeff Emmerich, quit working with the Beatles at that point. Jeff Emmerich is asked if he notices a change in the attitude and atmosphere in the studio regarding the group. Oh yeah, I mean, it was 
it was. It, I mean, I, I, it was horrible. I mean, it, it was just a very heavy atmosphere. Uh, there's sort of bickering and arguing, and you know, and it, you know, we'd made pepper, and it, it was, it was just, it was just getting, and that they were turning up, the, you know, the amps louder in the studio. Everything was more aggressive, you know, and I, I couldn't really come to terms with it, you know. And as you know, I, I left after. Well, I, I, I walked out. Didn't walk out. I just said I couldn't take it anymore, and left after about recording eight tracks of the album. I think he was no longer able to withstand the rapidly worsening atmosphere and tenseness within the group. I lost interest in the White Album, Emmerich says, because they were really arguing amongst themselves and swearing at each other. The explanatives were really flying. There was one incident just before I left, when they were doing Obla di Obla da for the umpteenth time. Paul was re-recording the vocal again, and George Martin made some remark about how he should be lifting onto the half-beat or whatever, and Paul, in no refined way, said something to the effect of, Well, you come down here and sing it. I said to George Martin, Look, I've had enough. I want to leave. George said, Well, leave at the end of the week. But I said, No, I want to leave now, this very minute. I went down the stairs at number two and said, said to them, Look, you know, I've decided to, to, you know, to, to leave. I can't, can't take this anymore. And John sort of, sort of you know, extended his arms out to the walls and all the, the drapes that were hanging down the, the studio walls. You know, he said, It's not basically it's not nothing to do with you, Jeff. You know, it's, it's, it's this. You know, basically they've been stuck in that studio for so long, you know. And it was getting to him. And that was it. And who replaced Jeff as balance engineer? Well, Ken Scott did. Cry, baby, cry. Make him of the side. The king of Marigold was in the kitchen. Cooking breakfast for the queen The queen was in the parlor Playing piano for the children of the king Cry, baby, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry The king was in the garden Picking flowers for a friend who came to play The queen was in the playroom Painting pictures for the children's holiday Cry, baby, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry The Duchess of Kikordi Always smiling and arriving late for tea The Duke was having problems With a message at the local Burnaby Cry, baby, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry Twelve o'clock a meeting Round the table For a seance In the dark With voices out of nowhere Put on specially By the children For a laugh Cry baby cry Make him up sigh She's old enough to know better 
So cry, baby, cry, cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry, 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 cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry. On the 17th, all four Beatles attended the world premiere of the cartoon film Yellow Submarine. Of good, the Beatles, 
a boob. I must complete my bust. Two novels, finish my blueprints, begin my begin. Hey, Jeremy, must you always talk in rhyme? <laughs> if I spoke prose, you'd all find out. I don't know what I talk about. He's a Forces of Evil, Robin, the Butterfly Stomper, Snapping Turtle Turk, the Apple Barkers, the Terrible Flying Glove, the Arch Villain, the Blue Meanie. You could pass for the original. We are the original. John, will you? What's the matter, John, love? Blue meanies? Newer and bluer meanies have been sighted within the vicinity of this theatre. There's only one way to go out. How's that? Singing! One, two, three... On July 17, Paul McCartney arrives alone to join John and Yoko, George and his wife Patty, for the world premiere of the full-length cartoon Yellow Submarine at the London Pavilion. Paul gives his impressions of the film. The only thing that's a pity about the film is that uh, we didn't manage to use our voices on it because we were working a lot and we, we didn't get it together. And we tried to do it later, but it's impossible because it's very difficult to do uh, the other way around. You can't put new voices on a film that's already made uh, with animation. It's a bit difficult with cartoon films to do that. But that's, it's still a great film. It was, it's a film about us, you know. So it's like saying uh, The Seven Dwarfs made Snow White by Walt Disney, but Walt Disney made it, really, not The Seven Dwarfs. We're just in his house drawings, and it's like us animated goes through it, you know. But did Mystery Tour put you off making a film completely yourselves? Yeah, we're only ever going to be cartoons forever because <laughs> they really pull us off those. It's a new career piece. no good damn critics. The film makes, the cartoon makes a bit of fun of the Maharishi. Does this mean that you've finished with him now? He's well, it's not, of fun. not finished with, you know, but we're over that phase. It was a bit of a phase. But he's still a nice fella and everybody's fine, but we don't go out with him anymore. 
An animator of Yellow Submarine, Tom Haley, gives us an insight to the production. The design is almost two-dimensional. When I was animating some of the mini stuff, it has had a more three-dimensional feeling to it. And the minis were fun to animate. They were real minis. <laughs> and they're nice to get hold of. Um, the, the Beatles were somewhat different they, to draw. They had a... You had to be very accurate, certainly with some of the faces. Paul was quite difficult to get the look of Paul. George was much easier. He had good, strong cheekbones. You could get hold of him. And John, with the glasses and that, was reasonably easy. Ringo uh, wasn't too difficult to get. But it was made in a year. And um, I think all things considered, it was very successful. At the party, George Harrison tells reporters of the new album they're recording. Oh yeah, the songs we wrote, they're not Indian sort of things, but uh, they're just, you know, Beatle music. You know, all the songs we do, we just write them all the time, so, uh, you know, we just happen to have written some in India. Thank you. 
The Yellow Submarine incredibly successful film. Ringo roused the title song for the animated feature, and the Beatles conquered the cartoon world. America already had the lads in two-dimensional TV form with a Saturday morning cartoon adventure series. <laughs> yeah. On July 18, 1968. Well, whenever they have to say, I'm not going to have a week or two weeks. Because they don't say, I'm going to wait time to leave. p.m. until 3.30 a.m., the Beatles taped three extended rehearsal versions of Paul McCartney's song Helter Skelter. The assigned technical engineer on the sessions was Brian Gibson. These versions were longer than 10 minutes long, the longest ever Beatles recording. Here's take two. Take two.
The helter-skelter session lasted late into the early morning hours. Paul felt that the song, and what seemed to be a never-ending jam, still wasn't right, and vowed to redo the track at a later session. He went back to his house on Cavendish Avenue, around the corner from EMI, with an amateur female reporter. Her name was Francie Schwartz. As for McCartney's fiancée, Jane Asher, long-standing problems were coming to a head. The 26-year-old McCartney confided in Schwartz, whom he had started dating despite his engagement to Jane. He said that they had come to a point in their relationship where they really had to make a choice. Um, and if they were to go one way, it would be get married and have a baby. It was because she just didn't want to live under the shadow of Beetle Paul, which it was getting quite extraordinary by then. Very difficult for a woman who wants a career to continue a career if her husband is Paul McCartney. As it was with John Lennon in the month of May, Paul's fiance Jane Asher, came home one evening to find her future husband, Mr. McCartney, at home with another woman. In Alistair Taylor's book, titled With the Beatles, Alistair writes, Jane came home to find Paul with Francie Schwartz, a groupie from New York. It was terrible for Jane. Francie was not just in the house, but in the bed she shared with Paul. Jane was in a state of shock, and her relationship with Paul ended there and then. There were fans waiting at the gate as usual, and they tried to warn Paul that Jane was approaching. But Paul thought that they were joking, and he couldn't resist another woman. The next day at EMI Studios... Back at EMI Studios in London on Friday the 19th of July, the Beatles worked on another song, Sexy Sadie. The song was originally a bitter John Lennon song about Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, written after John had left India in April, somewhat disappointed with the Holy Man. But John replaced the word Maharishi with Sexy Sadie to avoid any upset. And by the way, the track you had just heard, Brian Epstein Blues, was also recorded during the Sexy Sadie sessions by John Lennon. Here's the song they had worked on that day. You made a fool of everyone. You made a fool of everyone. Sexy Sadie, oh, what have you done? Sexy Sadie, you broke the rules. Hey, hey. 
Okay, Robert. Take 29. Reach for this one. Would any of them any good? A mind bender. I said, it's no point in Mr. Martin being uptight. Right. You know, we're all here to do this, and it's going to be uptight. I mean, you're very negative.
sunny day the world is waiting for a lover She came along to turn on everyone Sexy Sadie, she's the greatest of them all Sexy Sadie, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone You made a fool of everyone Sexy Sadie, oh, what have you done? Sexy Sadie One night while McCartney was off recording, Schwartz was at his home. I was sitting watching TV in my bathrobe, and the front door opened, and it was Mrs. Asher, Jane Asher's mother. And she came in to remove Jane's clothes. Soon after that incident, McCartney asked Schwartz to move in with him. On July 20th, 1968, Jane Asher appeared on a television show and announced her engagement to Paul was off. July 20th, Jane Asher announced that her engagement to Paul was off. Schwartz watched the show with McCartney and his parents. This wave of shocked silence went through all of us. It was painful because she was announcing it publicly. And she didn't leave it up to him. And that's the one thing Mr. McCartney, excuse me, Sir Paul, never wants to happen. He really is a control person. Back around the corner on July 25th at EMI Studios, George Harrison recorded one of his most memorable songs. I wrote here at my mother's house in the north of England. I just had my guitar and uh, I think I I just opened a letter. I just wanted to write a song and I do this often actually. If I haven't got particularly an idea for a song, then I'm, I believe in a bit like I Ching, you know, where it's everything is at that moment is relative to that situation so with, with where my guitar gently weeps i think was typical of that pulled the book out of the bookcase and opened it up and it, it said something about something gently weeping i just opened it and the first thing i looked at became the song and it was something about gently weeps and then from that it my the whole thought started going and i just wrote the song then just closed the book again and I had the idea. This is take one. I look at you all, see the love that I'm sleeping, while my guitar gently weeps. The problems you solve are the troubles you're leaving. Still my guitar gently weeps. I don't know why nobody knows how to unfold I don't know how someone could know they want to know. I look at 
In the summer of 1968, the Beatles couldn't help but notice that whenever a news article appeared reporting their current activities, it was accompanied by a photograph of them wearing their psychedelic fashions from the year before, or worse yet, a picture of them as the lovable mop tops from the Beatlemania era. The reason for this was simple. The press no longer had the opportunity to photograph the group since they hadn't performed in concert since 1966, and were now making fewer and fewer public appearances together. This meant that the media didn't have current pictures of the ever-changing group, with the exception of a very brief photo session that took place in EMI Recording Studios on February the 8th. The Beatles hadn't yet posed for any group photos in 1968. A plan was devised to alleviate this situation. On Sunday, July 28, 1968, in the midst of recording sessions for a new album, the Beatles decided to spend a mad day out, being photographed at seemingly random locations all over London. Paul's then-girlfriend, Francie Schwartz, was assigned the task of picking locations that would act as suitable photographic sites. Vietnam War photographer Don McCullen was called upon to act as primary cameraman. However, additional photographers Ronald Fitzgibbon, Stephen Goldblatt, Tom Murray, and Tony Bramwell came along as well. Beale's assistant Mal Evans also came along and took pictures. Other spectators included Mal's six-year-old son Gary Evans, Yoko Ono, and Francie Schwartz. They took photographs at the Thompson House, the Mercury Theater, Highgate Cemetery, Old Street Underground Station, St. Pancras Old Church and Gardens, Wapping Pierhead, and Paul McCartney's Cavendish Home. Meanwhile, back in London... On the 30th, the Apple Boutique in Baker Street gave away all its remaining stock and went out of business. All the clothes are given away. Crowds are camped outside all night. The value of the stock is estimated at £20,000. John Lennon is asked, when did he decide to close the Apple Boutique down? I don't know. I was controlling the scene at the time. You know, I mean, I was the one going in the office and shouting about Paul had done it. Paul had done it for six months. I walked in and changed everything. But all all the Peter Browns were reporting behind me back to Paul saying, hey, John's doing this and he's doing that. And like, John's crazy. I was always the one that must be crazy because I wouldn't let him have status quo. And uh, we, I came up the uh, was it my idea or yours? Well, we came up the idea to 
give it all away and stop fucking about with psychedelic clothes shop. So we gave it all away. Were you there for the giveaway? No, we read it in the papers. That was when we started events. I learned events from Yoko. No events we did. We made everything into event from then on and got rid of it. Beatles road manager and director of Apple, Neil Aspinall. I think we got to the point where we didn't want it anymore. Well, because we ended up selling the Marks and Spencer's underwear. <laughs> and it's not the image we started with. We started with, you know, Simon and Marike and all these colorful clothes and, you know, great 60s hippie gear. And then, you know, to make it pay, we ended up selling St. Michael underwear. And it wasn't the image we wanted. We just gave it to the people who showed up on the day. And you could have one item each. And you mustn't take two in the spirit of the thing. Well, they cleaned out the shop. But I think, personally, it was a good way to do it because it showed we weren't really seriously trying to sort of be in the rag trade. It was like, look, it didn't work, so you can have the schmatter. That's it. You know? And uh, we all went round the night before. We gave everything away, you know, and uh, took what we felt we, we wanted, you know. I didn't go there, and I, I, I had a half acquaintance I uh, saw outside Apple. He, I said, where are you going? He said, oh, I'm off to the shop. I'm going to join the queue to get some of those clothes. And I thought that was awful. Mm. And I didn't want them to close the shop, and I wrote an impassioned open letter. Dear boys, you know, if you do this, and a lot of other hoo-ha. Because I dreaded to see the thing falling apart. People's brief excursion into shopkeeping is over. They say they're now rather tired of this particular toy. And All right, only ten can go in, so stop. Ten. One, two, three. We're ready. Oh, I'm so shaken up. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm doing here now. I've been here since seven and I just have to get shoved through the door. You're shaking up what because of the crush outside? Oh, I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> I'm from Canada and I just... Uh, what sort of clothes are you looking for now? I don't know. <laughs> anything. Anything that's going to be looking. <laughs> Would you have come to buy something here if it hadn't been free? Too expensive for me. Would you have come here to buy something if it hadn't been free? Um, I have before now. I've got several things in here. So it's not just because it's free. It's because I like the shop. Mm. Um, not particularly, but they're a bit too way out for me. But I like to have a look and see what's going on. Around. So you're going to take something way out that's free today? Yes, I will. Paul comments on the demise of the Apple Boutique. We decided to close down the shop last Saturday. Not because it wasn't making any money, but because we thought the retail business wasn't our particular scene. When you were here to see On July 30th, at EMI Studios, London, the Beatles rehearsed and recorded a new song titled Hey Jude. This session took place primarily to fulfill a promise given by the Beatles to the National Music Council of Great Britain that they can be filmed for a documentary about the various forms of British music, produced by James Archibald. Hey Jude! 
singing that ball, but it wasn't the one. It's the second one out of every three that is the one. Do you, want to, do you want to hear any of it before you do any more, or do you want to go straight for another? On August 1st, 1968, the Beatles record the song that will launch the Apple label, Hey Jude. From the heart of the black country. When I was a robber in Boston Place You gathered round me with your fun embrace Hey Jude, don't make it bad Take a sad song and make it better Remember to let her into your heart Then you can start to make it better
On the same day, after widespread criticism about the management of the Apple boutique, Paul tells the reporter, we always make our mistakes in public. In early August 1968, Apple's first music publishing group, Grapefruit, recorded their third single. John Lennon arranged the brass section for the piece. Here's the single, Come On Mary Ann. Yeah, I'll do anything 
On August the 7th, the Beatles began recording George Harrison's song, Not Guilty. This was to become something of a marathon task, for the rehearsal recording takes exceeded 100 for the first time on a Beatles song, and it still would be left unreleased. Not guilty of getting in your way while you're trying to steal the day. Not guilty, and I'm not before the rest. I'm not trying to steal your vest. I am not trying to be smart. I only want what I can get. Really sorry for your aging head But like you heard me said Not guilty No use handing me a writ While I'm trying to do my bit I don't expect to take your heart I only want what I can get I'm really sorry that you're underfed But like you heard me said Not guilty The next song was written during George Harrison's stay at the Maharishi camp in India. George Harrison and the Beatles recorded this home Easter demo of the song in 1968, later given to Jackie Lomax. Here's the song Sour Milk Sea. Oh. 
August 9th. A little bit of brass band. You know, a very nice little bit of brass band. Yes, that would be lovely. Distance a little bit of brass band. Yeah. A little bit of Nielsen's brass band.
Can you take this thing off my voice? I've got like the speaker. I can hear. Ah, thank you. Okay, leave it on then. Good. Contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time.
everyone, Paul and James here to tell you about one of the best music podcasts online today. It's called Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Yeah, as longtime listeners of our show know, Take It Away and its hosts, Ryan Brady and Chris Mercer, are the authority on all things Paul McCartney, Wings, and the Beatles. Their five-star rated podcast walks you through every single Paul McCartney release from 1970 to present day. That's every song on every album, including singles, B-sides, bootlegs, and you will most likely hear songs you've never heard before, which is part of the fun of the show. You'll also hear old favorites from new perspectives, all lovingly placed in the context of McCartney's career and the musical sounds of their era. Yeah, and don't miss the amazing interview with Denny Lane, co-founder of Wings and McCartney songwriting collaborator, as well as a slew of other special guest appearances that give some really cool insight into the music that spans the last 50 years. So if you're a McCartney fan, you've found your new favorite show, because I know I have. Seriously, I never miss an episode, and neither should you. That's Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney Archive podcast, available for download now wherever you find podcasts. Check it out now! I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. <laughs> hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star podcast. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. <laughs> we are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird, see? We weren't even lying. <laughs> <laughs>